Grab your Bible and turn to Joshua chapter 1. Let's go to Joshua chapter 1 to get started. Boy, what a great morning. Let's keep it rolling as we get in God's Word here. Joshua chapter 1. Uh, for those of you who are note takers, just so you're aware, those uh, last four things on the bottom of the page there, we'll get in the last minutes of our time together. So the rest of that's there for you to take notes as you want. We are in an incredible chapter. We're going to get to chapter 22. And you just, I can't break that chapter up. You just got to go with the narrative and understand the whole story altogether. Uh, And in order to begin understanding the story of Joshua 22, let me begin in chapter 1, verse 10. And remembering back, if you're here in the beginning of our series... And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions. For within three days, you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. This is before they're in the promised land. Verse 12, and to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh, a very important people for Uh, Chapter 22, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. In other words, on the east side of the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers. In other words, along with the other nine and a half tribes, and you shall help them. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded we will do. Wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Now go to Joshua chapter 22. Joshua chapter 1 sets a context. It's kind of a, if you will, a midpoint. It's actually back in Numbers 32 that these two and a half tribes gave a commitment to Moses that when they came to the promised land, they would join with the other nine and a half on the other side and conquering the other side of the promised land on the west side of the Jordan. And then after that time, they'd come back. And Joshua 1 is basically, now's the time, boys. Now's the time to man up. And they're like, dude, we're in on this. We are in on this. What the Lord has said, we will do. And then we come to Joshua 22. Let me actually read the first three verses, or last three verses of chapter 21 They're an incredible summary of everything. Verse 43, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he has sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. Not one. All came to pass. Lord, I pray as we dig into chapter 22 that we would learn. We would learn more of you, and especially out of this chapter, how that means we should do life together. God, more of you. 
more of you so we live more of you. Precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's pick up chapter 22, verse 1. At that time, at what time? At the time that we just said from verses 43 to 45, when, when, when they're there, not all the promised land is fully conquered, but they have the majority of it. And by the way, chapter 20 sent some context. Remember that a couple of weeks ago, the cities of refuge. Now they're setting in place these final kind of unique things, the cities of refuge, six cities of refuge, three on the east side of the Jordan, three on the west side of the Jordan. These are unique cities so people could run there in a unique situation and then Chapter 1 is another unique thing that's happening. Uh, 48 cities, including the six uh, cities of refuge, are cities for the Levites, for, for kind of, let's kind of call them the, the pastors uh, that are around the area. And now we've got places for them, and, and all this is in place, and it's like they are ready to go almost. Uh, at that time, something else has to be finished out. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. Way to go, boys. Verse 3. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days. Many days. Many days is actually talking like uh, seven, eight, nine years at this point. I mean, nearly a decade of days. Uh, Down to this day but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers. As he promised them, therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where, you, where your possession lies. In other words, on the east side of the Jordan, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Verse 5. Only be very careful. This is kind of cool because he, he's so commending them. and This is like the last minute charge to him. I, I mean, they're about to leave. They're about to head home and... I moved a lot growing up, and, and I remember with some of my friends those last minutes of contact when you knew that you weren't going to either see them again or for a long, long time. It was kind of the, those last five minutes were just always so important to me. I, I learned to grab a hold of those, and this is the time to sum it all up and, and put it on the table because you may not have another chance. And look at what he says. This is just amazing. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Let's talk about verses five and six just for a minute here. Be very careful. In the Hebrew, it's an imperative statement. In other words, it's not a suggestion. It's a do this. It's a command. It's something of uh, give your full attention of the highest degree to this. By the way, it also implies, if you say to someone, be very careful, you're also meaning that you're saying that because there's the potential that you could be careless in the situation. And so he's just reminding them, hey, be very careful about something to do what? Uh, the text goes on, to observe. By the way, to observe, we, we have observe like, hey, did you observe that? Yeah, sure did. Hey, let's go get some lunch. Or it's kind of like whatever I saw, it. you know, you just scan by it. The word is not talking about that here. The word is talking about observing with a great intent, 
I mean, you're peering into it and you're, you're peering into it to pull out of something to, to do from it. I mean, you're, you're, you're looking at it with great intensity. Be very careful to observe something like that. To observe what? Well, the text tells us the Lord's commandments. By the way, it's the Lord's commandments. Not mine. Not yours. Not harvest. Not someone else's. The Lord's commandments. And they're commandments, not suggestions. Honestly, it's not even if you feel like it. Do it. Be very careful to observe the Lord's commandments. And with it, he goes on, be very careful to do that and be very careful to love the Lord your God. You know, you can obey and not love. You can, well, I've been obeying the Lord. Yeah, but here it's like, do you love him? Not admire him, not acknowledge him, not even appreciate him, definitely not date him. Love him. Love does have emotion to it. But love is first and foremost not a feeling. Real deep, this kind of love. This is the kind of love that is cognitive love. It comes out of truth. It comes out of knowing. By the way, think about that. Be very careful to observe the Lord's commandments. Hey, here's the deal. When you dig in and you understand from God's word what God has to say, who God is, as time goes on, you increasingly so are like, God rocks. It's like unbelievable. The more time I spend, it never gets boring. It's just like God gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It never ends. You're never there. And the more you observe God's commandments and get to know who God is and why he has put into place the stuff he's put in place, you step back and you just go, whoa, you're awesome. Observe his commandments, love the Lord. And also, it's not just, it doesn't end there. It's walk in his ways. Be very careful to do that. Walk in him. Well, I love him and I read his word. No, walk in him. It should so change everything you do. We should be increasingly more and more putting on what God wants us to be and do. And in fact, it even tells us what walking looks like. It means keeping the Lord's command, the text tells us. It means obey him. But it also means clinging to the Lord. I, I love the, I call that velcroed to him. Are you Velcroed to him? Like, you know, like a little kid coming up to your legs, you know, and just grabbing a hold and you do the, you know, the kid walk thing. And it's like, and it's like, you can't pull me off. If you're going to Velcro me off, it's like, it's significant. I mean, Velcroed to him, clinging to him, serving the Lord wholeheartedly. It's not crud. I have to serve the Lord. It's like, I get to serve the Lord. Paul talks in Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 4, first terms he starts out with, I, a prisoner of the Lord. And by the way, it's not just because he was in jail. I literally think that's what Paul's mindset. I'm only here for a little while. There's lots of things I could do. But you know what? For the little time that I'm here, I'm going to view my life as his prisoner. Because it's his deal. Wow, would that not change life? Be very careful to observe the Lord's commandments, to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways. By the way, this isn't just a charge for those guys. Wow, this is a charge for us. This is a charge 
for us. How are you doing with this? Let me just kind of ask this. Does what we've just talked about, I'm not, we're, we're not a church that's about trying to play a game and like we're all perfect. I mean, come on. We'll talk about that later this morning. But I am saying this. Is, is that tone of what he's giving out, is, is that who you are seeking to be? I mean, is it? That's what it should be. That's our life call. Verse 6, Joshua finishes by sending him a blessing. Uh, it's important that I make this statement. We don't get a feel that Joshua sees a problem here. There's no problem. Everything's done. You've done everything the way that you should have. You've been faithful to the Lord. You've been faithful to us for years and years and years and years now. And guys, I just am like, man, way to go. I just want to thank you and give my blessings upon you. Go. You don't feel like there's any undergirding problems, do you? Do you? Do you? Okay. No, you don't. Watch what happens. Sends them away with his blessings, and they're going home. Verse 7. Now, to the one half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, in other words, the east side of Jordan. But to the other half tribe, uh, uh, Joshua had given a possession besides their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, and he said to them, go back to your tents with much wealth, with very much livestock, with silver, with gold, with bronze and iron, and with much clothing, and divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. Pause. Very interesting. Uh, they get tribe. We don't. We're a very independent culture. I mean, could you imagine if that was you? You're like going to war, and, and uh, along with that, I go, they came into this with nothing, and they walked out with a ton. Stuff's not bad. Stuff's not the problem. But they do, they, and God's blessing over the years, they walk out with all this stuff, and then they're told, hey, go home uh, to your two and a half tribes and, and share it. Break it all out among all of you. I just ask myself, how would I be doing with that? Or how would you be doing with that? Let's see, all the walk home, I'd be like, let's see, seriously, I got to give all this away? I got to share it with you? Isn't that how we are in our culture? Uh, let's be frank about it. We don't get tribe. This was part of who they were. This is how they thought. What's mine's yours. We're bringing this back and all the brothers who have been staying home, taking care of our wives and families while we've been gone for these years and years and years. Guess what? They're part of this whole deal too because they've been putting it out. And so they all go home and they're going to share it together. What a challenge. Verse 9. So the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh returning, returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed, uh, possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. All this is just really very cool. Um, uh, two geographical notes here. Let's kind of take a look at the map here. Uh, uh, number one, uh, verse seven, it talks about the half tribe of Manasseh and they had a possession in Bashan. It's kind of in that area. You can see on the screen, the east side over there. And this is just the tribe of Manasseh. And then the other half of that tribe was given possession uh, besides their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. So it was near each other, but the Jordan went between those two. Uh, then at the end of verse 9, I just want to note this. There's talk about the land of Canaan, uh, the bigger section. And then there's the talk about the land of Gilead. Each is on each side of the Jordan River. Uh, I want to make a deal out of this. You may be thinking, Doug, why are you going to make a deal out of this? Here's why. Because we live in a bridge world, and they didn't. 
we get bridges. If you want to go down and cross over into Kentucky, get in your car and go. And when you get down there into Evansville or wherever you're going across, you take a bridge across. It takes you like two minutes and you're like out of Indiana and you're in Kentucky. And same way back and forth. They didn't have that convenience back then. And at times, uh, as our rivers oftentimes divide states, it was much more than that then. Especially when the Jordan was in flood stage. And that begins to have a mental division. I mean, we live in Indiana. They live in Kentucky. And you just start thinking that way. You thinking, you think in your groups. And, and I just noticed in the terminology of this, and we'll see some more of this, that there's these terms like the land of Canaan, the land of Gilead. There's that half, this half. There's the Lord's possession and then from Moses' possession. I'm just going to say, friends, built within this, as we'll see in this text, there's some undergirding problems, a bit of division among the team. There's us and there's you. We're going to see that unfold here. Verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. Pause. Okay. <laughs> You've been in war for seven, nearly a decade years. <laughs> and you've fulfilled your mission and you're released. Go home. Why are they stopping and building an altar? I mean, and in the text, where is this altar at? This altar is on the other side, not their side. It's on the west side of the Jordan. Why are they doing this? Go home. An altar back in that time, it wasn't like there was a Lowe's or a Menards next door. And you go and just grab some block and you nail that thing out in a few hours. Back in that day, this probably took days, if not a week or more to build. And notice in the text, and it's imposing size. In the Hebrew, this is an imperative form of what's being talked about here. This word is, is meaning, uh, I'm sorry, not imperative. It's, it's a massive word here. If you go over into Exodus chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 12, and you take a look where God is talking with Abraham, and God says to Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation. And then he talks about how, look at the stars in the sky and by the way they see a lot more stars where they were with a lot lights and where they're at than we do and it's like massive number of stars that's the word god used i'm going to make you a great nation a massive nation a huge nation out of you abraham also it's later used in exodus referring to the power of god and it says of god's great power now, God doesn't have a little bit of power, uh, kind of like a lot of power. You know, even saying God has big power, that's like doesn't even hit the nail on the head. This word is using that to describe God's massive power. Uh, please understand, what's trying to be said here is they built this altar, and it was huge. Huge. You know how you drive out west sometimes, and you stop at these places, and they've got like these huge rocking chairs? What's the deal with that? That's what they were doing. That's what's happening here. They're building something huge. And I just asked myself, go home. Why are you doing this? This just seems odd. Turn to the left of Deuteronomy 12 just for a minute here. I think it's important that we read something to understand 
especially why this is a bit odd and maybe even a problem. Deuteronomy chapter 12. Context is, is this isn't just a, it's actually, if you look, it's a couple chapters after the golden calf incident. Deuteronomy 9. Moses is speaking for God. Verse 1, chapter 12. Uh, These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. They, They aren't there yet. This is years, decades before. Verse 2, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved things, uh, images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and your contribution that you present your vow offerings, your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice you and your households in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Jump down to verse 13. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. If you knew this passage, and by the way, we will see they did, both sides. What are you now thinking when you hear, that they are building a massive altar and there's nothing said about God said to put it there. I'm thinking, problem, something's going a little weird, right? Are you with me? Okay, we need to understand it that way. There's a problem going on here with the two and a half tribes I'm thinking right now because it's almost like the two and a half tribes are breaking off from the other nine and a half tribes. Something's out of kilter. Verse 11, chapter 22. Let's continue. And the people of Israel heard it said. Wait, wait. The people of Israel what? You tell me. Heard it said. Uh, They didn't see it. They weren't there. They heard it said. Very important. And the people of Israel, these are the nine and a half tribes on the west side, they heard it said, and this, behold, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half tribe of Manasseh, have built the altar of the frontier at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh, To make war against them. (laughs) Listen. The marine boys that have been fighting together with the other marine boys. For the last nearly decade. They aren't even home yet. 
And the West Side Marines, they want to Uzi up. They hear that our teammates got something wrong. And it's heresy in their eyes, in their ears. Now, before I get too hard on them, I actually want to commend them. Because what's commending about this is the fact here that they know Deuteronomy 12. And they know when they heard that some people of Israel have built a huge altar, they're like, Deuteronomy 12. Hey, I go, way to go, boys. You are seeing life through the eyes of Scripture. You are viewing it that way. And that's fantastic. Way to go, guys. In fact, isn't that verse 5 of chapter 22? Observe the commandments of the Lord. That's what they're doing. They're fulfilling that. However, the oozy up part mm, makes me a little nervous. And let me just kind of say it this way. Maybe you've been in a situation or in a church where brothers in Christ quickly oozy up and they don't even know what's really happened. I commend them. I commend them for knowing what God has said and their ears are in tune to it. I commend them the fact that they care. I commend the fact that they're very sensitive about wanting to have their people do what's right. Way to go, guys. And in most of the uh, commentaries you read, they just so focuses on a misunderstanding that we're going to see happening here. And it loses sight of the undergirding on both of these groups. They are lot wanting to love the Lord. But they're just a little tense about it. I appreciate their care for fidelity the Lord. I appreciate the fact that they want to honor him, but they've only heard it said. You may be thinking, uh, if you know your scriptures, well, Matthew 18, 15 says that if your brother has sinned, go and tell him his fault. That's what they're doing, going to do. It sounds like. Well, let, let's see what happens here. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad, verse 13, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged because that does sound a bit like Matthew 18. If your brother has sinned, go and tell him his fault. And that Uzium, but, but go and talk to him. But wait a second. The fact that they have Uzis in all of this is what's bothering me about this. The fact that they're going to go and uh, let's just keep reading and see what I'm talking about. Verse 14, and they brought into the land of Gilead Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with them 10 chiefs, one of each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them, the head of a family among the clans of Israel. Oh, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged here. They're going, they're not just bringing the military, but now apparently maybe someone put the brakes on it a little bit and they're bringing this team. Uh, This is literally the presidential cabinet of the day. Okay, this isn't just some low, low people like us. I mean, this is literally the presidential cabinet of the country. By the way, the question comes in is who's Phineas? I mean, here we see this Phineas guy and who is he? We haven't seen him before. We haven't met him before. And that's exactly right. Uh, Phineas... 
Uh, we see in verse 13, he was the son of Eleazar the priest. We've already met Eleazar the priest many times in Joshua. But Phineas shows up. He kind of comes to prominence in Numbers 25. If you want to write that down, go read the story. But basically what happens is, is the, the people of God in the promised land are beginning to bail out and get unfaithful with the Lord. In fact, they're entering into cultic prostitution. They're entering into the offering of sacrifices into the Baal of Peor. And God, out of that, has put a judgment of disease to where whoever is involved in that will die. 24,000 people have died among the Israelites. And God tells Moses and them to deal with it and go take the leaders. And so Phineas actually like steps out and he goes and he executes Zimri and Cosby. Cosby is a woman. And they are literally having sex in the tabernacle. And Phineas goes in and drives a spear through him and kills him. God then relented and pulled back his plague. Well, let me just say this. If you have an altar issue, an altar heresy problem going on, Phineas is a guy who's been involved with that before. And I mean that really. This is a guy to send. This guy will deal with it. Um, Maybe a little harsh, but he'll deal with it. That's who Phineas is. Um, Verse 15, I think we were at. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, listen to what they've said. What is this breach of faith? Oh, by the way, I forgot right before that. Thus is the whole congregation of the Lord. What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Whoa. Have we not had enough of sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves? They're still feeling the effects of it. And for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord. That you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. They see the whole tribe as well in it. Verse 19, but now, if the land of your possession is an unclean, is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar, the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, he's referring back to chapter 7, break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon the congregation of Israel and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. A few things I love about this, a couple I've already touched on. I love that they know God's word. They know that what has happened uh, uh, feels wrong from what they heard. I, I love their spiritual fidelity. I love their wanting to be faithful to what God has said to do. I love the fact that they are actually addressing perceived sin and doing it face to face, 
not by text, not by email, and oh dear God, not on Facebook. Face to face, there's a new concept for our day. I love that because it takes guts. It's easy to text and email conflict. It's too easy. I love that they knew that sin brings chaos. And they didn't want chaos for them. And they didn't want chaos for the whole of everybody. Now, two concerns. I'm concerned about their words. I've already alluded to this. Look at verse 16. It says, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. Now, I understand what they're saying in the beginning of this when they come and they first talk. And he's saying, you know, uh, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. But wait a second. If I were the two and a half tribes, I'd be like, but I thought I was part of the congregation of the Lord. I understand what they're saying. But friends, I'm telling you, in these kind of situations, things are, you need to be very careful with words. And here in the terminology of the whole congregation, well, they're part of the whole congregation. Also in verse 19, it says the land of your possession. And then it says pass over into the Lord's land where the tabernacle is. And there's some real understanding as to why that's said that way. But again, I just want to say in this kind of scenario, boy, there's a great division opportunity happening here. I'm concerned about their words. I'm also concerned about their hearts. The scripture in the New Testament tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Why do you say what you do? You say what you say because of what's in your heart. If you really want to know what's in your heart, pay attention to what you're saying. And so I look at that and I look at them and I read through this and I've tried to read through it like a, like a mad guy. And I've tried to read through it like uh, a lot of grace. But either way, they're accusing before they're asking. They're accusing before they've asked. They've only heard it said. Also, I'll just say they're attacking before they're clarifying. I mean, it says in it, what is this breach of faith you've committed against God? You can't say that not angry. I mean, it is you are turning away from following the Lord. The text goes on. You are building an altar in rebellion. Phineas, stop. Stop, my friend. Because where is Proverbs 18, 13, and 17? That if, verse 13, that if one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. He's only heard from one side. Verse 17 of Proverbs 18 says, the one who states his case first seems right. Oh yeah, and they heard it said. And verse 17 goes on to say, until the other comes and examines him. They don't have the full data. Proverbs 18, I've alluded to that, that it's like Proverbs, or, or, or um, Matthew 18, 15, go and tell your brother his fault. But hold on a second. What kind of mindset is that done? Well, Galatians 6, 1 through 2. It says, hey, you are spiritually mature, go and address sin, but do it in a mindset of grace and love to restore your brother, not to take him off. And that's what, where's the attitude with that? Where's the feel in this that that's the case? Friends, you don't see that here. And so I'm concerned for my brothers here, if you will. I just even add, where's Matthew 7 in this? In the beginning of Matthew chapter 7, it says that before you work on getting a speck out of someone else's eye, first stop and observe any logs in your own. 
And that means I'm to see my sin bigger than your sin. And you're to see your sin bigger than anybody else's sin. And where do we see them stopping and going, wait a second, have we not properly handled this right? Maybe we don't have all the data. Maybe we should start with a question and even ask if this whole thing is true. I don't know, maybe you're sitting here and going, boy, I've experienced that before. I don't know on which side. Maybe you've been part of a church where that's been the case. Two questions. If your brother or sister in Christ seems off kilter, seems off kilter with the Lord. By the way, we're not talking believer to unbeliever here. The context of the passage is believer to believer. If you see your brother or sister Christ off kilter with the Lord, and I'm going to try and say this with velvet on it, do you care? Really? I mean, they don't live in our neighborhood. They will live over there. So whatever. They had it coming to them. I just don't have time. I have to ask this question. If one of the tribe seems off kilter, do you and I care enough to want to care? I also ask, um, when troubles come up, are you quick to war or quick to clarify and gather data and ask questions? I'm just even asking in your home. Are you known as a warrior that pulls out the Uzi with your lips quickly or slowly? Are you known within your family and by other people as someone who is a question asker rather than attacker? I'm going to tell you, friends, there's a lot to learn from here. Verse 21. I wonder how the two and a half tribes are going to respond because they've been put on the hot seat. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, look at this, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. I love that. He knows. He knows and let Israel itself know. If, if this was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so, to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it. May the Lord himself take vengeance. Hey, by the way, do you understand what's happened? They've never offered anything on this altar. It's a neutered altar. It's just a billboard. It's just a monument. Maybe not done for the right reasons. Verse 24, look. No, underline this. But we did it from fear. Friends, fear is such an undergirding, underrunning, underlying reality of every one of our lives. We all get fear. Hey, do you remember in elementary school, out on the playground, 
I'll just say as a guy, wondering if you're going to be last to be picked for kickball. My wife talks about that in gym class with tears and trembling. Uh, She was usually last. She's never forgotten. And we all understand fear. I don't know if you're new here. You kind of come fear coming into a new church like, what are these wax doing? How does this whole thing go? We get that. We all understand fear. And so there's a part of this where I go, we get fear. But what did they fear? No, but we did it from fear. That in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, uh, you have no portion in the Lord. Whoa, I I just got to say, this is deep. And, and I get this. Let's just keep reading. You have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. You see, they're on, in a bridgeless society, and they're on the other side of the river. And the tabernacle is going, or the, 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 the place that the Lord ends up picking is going to be on the west side. And if you're over on the east side and you're like, I don't want to be left out of being part of the thing. I don't want to be Kentucky in, in, when it's in Indiana. Man. Can't you understand that? I, I get it. And by the way, in light of the fact that there's already been a bunch of terminology that's going on in you and us, it even kind of substantiates that. Verse 26, therefore we said, by the way, they didn't say to them, they said to themselves, uh, that's part of the problem. They had a fear and they didn't talk about it. They just talked about it among themselves. We said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, I love that. They knew Deuteronomy 12 as well. Way to go, guys. Verse 27, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings so your children will not say to our children in time to come. I love they're not just even being selfish, talking about themselves. They're thinking about down the road that they would say, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, so they've been talking about it, thinking about it, When we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold the copy of the altar of the Lord. In other words, look at what we built. Remember, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Bless their hearts. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before this tabernacle. (laughs) I love this chapter because it's so real life. We just misunderstand things at times. And I'm talking about believer to believer. And, and I understand their fear, but dudes, why didn't you go and talk to the other brothers and just come to the table with Phineas and Eleazar and, and Joshua and the lead tribes and bring your men and get together and guys, we're heading home. But I'm telling you, honestly, we're scared to death that the river is going to divide us and in time to come, we're, what do we do? Why didn't they do that? 
Actually, I think there was a bit of conniving. This is just me. I think that their fear drove them to do something to rise the issue up rather than just going and dealing it together. Bless their hearts. I'm not blessing what they did. (laughs) Verse 30, when Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke. See what communication does? It was good in their eyes. Phew. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst. When people work out problems, unity comes. It's okay to have problems. Let's just work it out. Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. In other words, from God's judgment. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chief, uh, and, the, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of all the people of Israel and the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them. They packed the Uzis up and, that, and uh, stopped that. Uh, verse 34, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad called the altar witness. For they said, it is a witness between us. I love that. Not you and us. Us. It is a witness of us that the Lord is God. How sweet. Bless these guys' hearts. Hey, just closing for application. Um, Number one, warriors for God mess up. I don't know if you know that or not, (laughs) but warriors for God mess up. And I do ask, do you know that? Because in our world today, I actually think sometimes we forget that. Why would you be surprised if I sinned? Why am I annoyed if you sin? That's bad theology. That's bad homardiology, as it's called. Listen, we live in a sin-cursed world. We are sin-cursed people. And even the person has come to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and has been forgiven of their sins and have been redeemed and joined back to God like Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 talks about. Even though that happens, guess what? We're still bent towards sin. Perfection is not the goal. Growing in Christ is the goal. And if growing in Christ is the goal, that also means sin is a part of the process. And so I just have to say personally, I'm just kind of getting tired of people as the more and more time goes along of people just saying, you know, I'm just tired of the local church because there's hypocrites there. I'm just like, what do you expect? I mean, there's times in my life I live like a hypocrite. Because I'm a sinner, redeemed. And maybe actually we've helped this. Maybe sometimes in our own pride, we just don't want to say, I failed. And you know in churches, my sin has effect. But know this, so does yours. Because we're a tribe. That's the reality of this. 
And I just say, as we're getting ready to start small groups, hey, in small groups, can you bag the pride and just get over the whole thing in our culture? If anyone sees that I have issues, hey, just bag it. You got issues. So do I. All right. It's not a big deal. We can deal with it. And when we deal with it together, God shows up in our midst. Let's be that. Hey, warriors mess up. That's a reality. Secondly, warriors for God, they get team. In 2001, the slogan for the U.S. Army, if you served in the Army, uh, uh, bless you, thank you for your service. But I I do got a critique. Uh, Back in 2001, they had the motto, an army of one. Really? Yeah, just send one guy over to Afghanistan. They'll take him out. I'm sorry, but that is the dumbest slogan and so untrue. 